Chapter 9 of The Girl from Hollywood by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Two weeks later, Grace Evans left for Hollywood in fame. She would permit no one to accompany her, saying that she wanted to feel that from the moment she left home, she had made her own way, unassisted, toward her goal. Hers was a selfish egotism that is often to be found in otherwise generous natures. She had never learned the sweetness and beauty of sharing of sharing her ambitions, her successes, and her failures, too, with those who loved her. If she won to fame, the glory would be hers. Nor did it once occur to her that she might have shared that pride and pleasure with others by accepting their help and advice. If she failed, they would not have even the sad sweetness of sharing her disappointment. Over two homes there hovered that evening a pall of gloom that no effort seemed able to dispel. In the ranch house on Ganado they made a brave effort at cheerfulness on Custer Pennington's account. They did not dance that evening, as was their custom, nor could they find pleasure in the printed page when they tried to read. Bridge proved equally impossible. Finally Custer rose, announcing that he was going to bed. Kissing them all good night, as had been the custom since childhood, he went to his room, and tears came to the mother's eyes as she noticed the droop in the broad shoulders as he walked from the room. The girl came then and knelt beside her, taking the older woman's hand in hers and caressing it. I feel so sorry for Custer, she said. I believe that none of us realize how hard he is taking this. He told me yesterday that it was going to be just the same as if Grace was dead, for he knew she would never be satisfied here again, whether she succeeded or failed. I think he has definitely given up all hope of their being married. Oh, no, dear, I'm sure he is wrong, said her mother. The engagement was not been broken. In fact, Grace told me only a few days ago that she hoped her success would come quickly so that she and Custer might be married the sooner. The dear girl wants us to be proud of her new daughter. My God, ejaculated the colonel, throwing his book down and rising to pace the floor. Proud of her? Weren't we already proud of her? Will being an actress make her any dearer to us? Of all the damn fool ideas. Custer, Custer, you mustn't swear so before Eva, reproved Mrs. Pennington. Swear, he demanded. Who the hell is swearing? A merry peal of laughter broke from the girl, nor could her mother refrain from smiling. It isn't swearing when Popsy says it, cried the girl. My gracious, I've heard it all my life, and you always say the same thing to him. As if I've never heard a single little cuss word. Anyway, I'm going to bed now, Popsy, so that you won't contaminate me. According to Momsey's theory, she should curse like a pirate by this time, after twenty-five years of it. She kissed them, leaving them alone in the little family sitting room. I hope the boy won't take it too hard, said the colonel after a silence. I'm afraid he's been drinking a little too much lately, said the mother. I only hope his loneliness for Grace won't encourage it. I hadn't noticed it, said the colonel. He never shows it much, she replied. An outsider would not know that he'd been drinking at all when I can see that he has had a little more than he should. Don't worry about that, dear, said the colonel. A Pennington never drinks more than a gentleman should. His father and his grandsires, on both sides, always drank. But there's never been a drunkard in either family. I wouldn't give two cents for him if he couldn't take a man's drink like a man. But he'll never go too far. My boy couldn't. The pride and affection of the words brought the tears to the mother's eyes. She wondered if there had ever been a father and son like these before, each with such implicit confidence in the honor, the integrity, and the manly strength of the other. His boy couldn't go wrong. Custer Pennington entered his room, lighted a reading lamp beside the deep, wide-armed chair, selected a book from a rack, and settled himself comfortably for an hour of pleasure and inspiration. But he did not open the book. Instead, he stared blindly at the opposite wall. Directly in front of him hung a watercolor of the Apache, done by Eva and given to him the previous Christmas. 
a framed enlargement of the photograph of a prize Hereford bull, a pair of rusty Spanish spurs, and a frame of ribbons won by the Apache at various horse shows. Custer saw none of these, but only a gloomy vista of dreary years stretching through the dead monotony of endless ranch days that were all alike. Years that he must travel alone. She would never come back, and why should she? In the city, in that new life, she would meet men of the world, men of broader culture than his, men of wealth, and she would be sought after. They would have more to offer her than he, and sooner or later she would realize it. He could not expect to hold her. Custer laid aside his book. What's the use, he asked himself. Rising, he went to the closet and brought out a bottle. He had not intended drinking. On the contrary, he had determined very definitely not to drink that night. But again he asked himself the old question which, under certain circumstances of life and certain conditions of seeming hopelessness, appears answerable. What is the use? It is a foolish question, a meaningless question, a dangerous question. What is the use of what? Of combating fate? Of declining to do the thing we ought to do? Of doing the thing we should do? Is it not even a satisfactory means of self-justification? But amid the ruins of his dreams it was sufficient excuse for Custer Pennington's surrender to the cravings of an appetite which was daily becoming stronger. The next morning he did not ride before breakfast with the other members of the family, nor, in fact, did he breakfast until long after they. On the evening of the day of Grace's departure, Mrs. Evans retired early, complaining of a headache. Guy Evans sought to interest himself in various magazines, but he was restless and too ill at ease to remain long absorbed. At frequent intervals he consulted his watch. As the evening wore on, he made numerous trips to his room, where he had recourse to a bottle at the one which Custer Pennington was similarly engaged. It was Friday, the second Friday since Guy had entered into an agreement with Allen, and as midnight approached his nervousness increased. Young Evans, while scarcely to be classed as a strong character, was more impulsive than weak, nor was he in any sense of the word vicious. While he knew that he was breaking the law, he would have been terribly shocked at the mere suggestion that his acts placed upon him the brand of criminality. Like many another, he considered the Volstead Act the work of an organized and meddlesome minority, rather than the real will of the people. There was, in his opinion, no immorality in circumventing the 18th Amendment, whenever and wherever possible. The only fly in the ointment was the fact that the liquor in which he was at present trafficking had been stolen, but he attempted to square this with his conscience by the oft-reiterated thought that he did not know it to be stolen goods. They couldn't prove that he knew it. However, the fly remained. He must have been one of those extremely obnoxious, buzzy flies, if one might judge by the boy's increasing nervousness. Time and again, during that long evening, he mentally reiterated his determination that, once this venture was concluded, he would never embark upon another of a similar nature. The several thousand dollars which it would net him would make it possible for him to marry Eva and settle down to a serious and uninterrupted effort at writing the one vocation for which he believed himself best fitted by inclination and preparation. But never again, he shared himself repeatedly, would he allow himself to be cajoled or threatened into such an agreement. He disliked and feared Allen, whom he now knew to be a totally unscrupulous man, and his introduction the preceding Friday to the Confederates, who had brought down the first consignment of whiskey from the mountains, had left him fairly frozen with apprehension as he considered the type of ruffians with whom he was associated. During the intervening week he had been unable to concentrate his mind upon his story-writing even to the extent of a single word of new material. He had worried and brooded, and he had drunk more than usual. As he sat waiting for the arrival of the second consignment, he pictured the little cavalcade winding downward along hidden trails through the chaparral of dark mountain ravines. His nervousness increased as he realized the risk of discovery sometime during the six months that it would take to move the contraband to the edge of the valley in this way, 
thirty-six cases at a time, packed out on six burrows. He had little fear of the failure of this plan, for hiding the liquor in the old hay barn and moving it out the following day. For three years they had been stored in one end of the barn some fifty tons of melly lotus. They had been sown as a cover crop by a former foreman, and allowed to grow to such proportions as to render the plowing of it under a practical impossibility. As hay it was in little or no demand, but there was a possibility of a hay shortage that year. It was against this possibility that Evans had it baled and stored away in the barn, where it had laid ever since, awaiting an offer that would at least cover the cost of growing, harvesting, and baling. A hard day's work had so rearranged the bales as to form a hidden chamber in the center of the pile, ingress to which could be readily be had by removing a couple of bales near the floor. A little after eleven o'clock Guy left the house and made his way to the barn, where he paced nervously to and fro in the dark interior. He hoped that the men would come early and get the thing over, for it was this part of the operation that seemed most fraught with danger. The disposal of the liquor was effected by daylight, and the very boldness and simplicity of the scheme seemed to assure its safety. A large motor truck, such trucks are constantly seen upon the roads of Southern California, loaded with farm and orchard products, and bound cityward, drove up to the hay barn in the morning after the receipt of the contraband. It backed into the interior, and half an hour later it emerged with a small load of baled melly lotus. That there were thirty-six cases of bonded whiskey concealed by the innocent-looking bales of melly lotus, Mr. Volstead himself could not have guessed. But such was the case. Where it went to after he left his hands, Guy Evans did not know, or want to know. The man who bought it from him owned and drove the truck. He paid Evans six dollars a quart in currency, and drove away, taking, besides the load on the floor of the truck, a much heavier burden from the mind of the young man. The whiskey was in Guy's possession for less than twelve hours a week, but during those twelve hours he earned a commission of a dollar a bottle that Allen allowed him, for his great fear was that sooner or later someone would discover and follow the six burrows as they came down to the barn. There were often campers in the hills. During the deer season, if they did not have it all removed by that time, they would be almost certain of discovery, since every courageous ribbon-counter clerk in Los Angeles hied valiantly to the mountains with a high-powered rifle to track the ferocious deer to its lair. At a quarter past twelve, Evans heard the sounds of which he had been so expectantly waiting. He opened the small door in the end of the hay barn, through which there filed in silence six burdened burrows, led by one swarthy Mexican and followed by another. Quietly the men unpacked the burrows and stored the thirty-six cases in the chamber beneath the hay. Inside the same chamber, by the light of the flash lamp, Evans counted out to one of them the proceeds from the sale of the previous week. The whole transaction consumed less than half an hour, and was carried on with the exchange of less than a dozen words. As silently as they come, the men departed, with their burrows into the darkness toward the hills, and young Evans made his way to his room and to bed. End of chapter 9